Today's reading comes from Acts 20, verse 17 to chapter 21, verse 14. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you, from the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. After we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Kos. The next day we went to Rhodes and from there to Patera. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia and went on board to set sail. After sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. We landed at Tyre, where our ship was to unload its cargo. We sought out the disciples there and stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When it was time to leave, we left and continued on our way. All of them, including wives and children, accompanied us out of the city, and there on the beach we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went on board the ship and they returned home. We continued our voyage from Tyre and landed at Ptolemy, where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, The Holy Spirit says, In this way the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, The Lord's will be done. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be, be to God. God. Let me tell you about one of the bravest men I ever met. 
He was a church pastor in Colombia, and when I met him, he travelled with his family to attend a gathering of pastors, all of whom had faced persecution from anti-Christian guerrilla forces. He, his wife and three children had travelled for five hours to attend this event, all five of them on the back of one motorbike. My wife and I had the chance to sit with him and listen to his story. He'd followed a calling, he believed, to plant a church in a small village. It was hard going, but soon Christians began to gather together in his house. And then he had a message from the guerrilla commanders. He was to stop. There was to be no more meetings. In Colombia, the communist guerrillas do not like independent churches like this. They don't like it when people discover a living faith, when they change their allegiance from some local warlord to the Prince of Peace. So they try to close them down. The pastor obeyed this command, sort of. He actually carried on meeting with the Christians in secret, but the trouble was it wasn't quite secret enough. One day when he and his family were away from the village, he got a phone call. And the phone call simply said that the guerrillas were waiting for him and would be there when he got back. He knew what that meant. It meant that he would be shot. What did you do? We asked him. What could we do? He replied. We went back. So they returned to what he believed would be his death. On the edge of the village there was a roadblock. Nineteen guerrilla fighters were waiting for him. They told him to leave the bike. So they climbed off the bike and then they walked through the roadblock and back towards their house. And the guerrillas followed them at a distance. I could hear their footsteps, he said. They sounded like the footsteps of death. They got to the house and the pastor went into the room that he used as a study and he knelt down and he began to pray. And his son was outside and wanted to join him, but the pastor wouldn't let him because he truly believed that the guerrillas were going to shoot him through the window. He knelt there praying with all his heart and he could hear the guerrillas coming nearer and nearer. And then they just passed by. They kept on walking. He heard them pass his window and the footsteps fade into the distance. Something changed their minds. The power of prayer, perhaps, or the quiet courage and example of the man they'd come to kill. Anyway, we asked the pastor what his vision was now for the village. I want to build a church, he said. Don't you ever think of leaving, I asked. Oh no, he replied. I will not leave until Christ gives me the victory. In the spring of 57 AD, Paul returned to Jerusalem. He was aiming to return in time for the festival of Pentecost, but he actually had a few days over, so he, along with Luke and other members of his party, stayed in Caesarea, a city on the coast of the Mediterranean. And they actually stayed with Philip, one of the seven deacons, and someone who left Jerusalem many years before during the first bout of persecution. While they're staying with Philip, they were visited by a man called Agabus. Agabus is a prophet. He's come up from Judea and he lets Paul know exactly what is lying in store for him if he decides to go on and complete this journey. What Agabus does is he takes off his belt and binds it around Paul and tells him that if he goes to Jerusalem, he will be imprisoned and handed over to the Romans. This is not the first time that Paul has heard this message. A week earlier, he'd been in Tyre, where the local Christians had begged him not to go on. Everyone, it seems, knew what was going to happen. 
Agabus was a prophet, but perhaps he didn't need massive prophetic powers to know that Paul returning to Jerusalem was a high-risk strategy. This, after all, was a city where he once hunted Christians and imprisoned them. Now he had switched sides, and people tend not to forget that sort of thing. So they know what's going to happen. But here's the thing. Paul knows what's going to happen as well. Earlier in the journey, in his uh, farewell speech to the Ephesian elders, he told them that he too had heard from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city, he said to them, that imprisonment and persecutions are waiting for me. There in Caesarea, everyone begs him not to go on. And then in verse 13 of chapter 21, Paul says this, What are you doing? weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul's friends and colleagues have spent too many years with the old campaigner not to know that he's not going to change his mind. So they simply say, the Lord's will be done and prepare for the journey. And of course, that's exactly what happens. Paul ends in chains. He goes to Jerusalem, he meets opposition, a mob is raised against him, he's arrested and mistaken, in fact, for a terrorist. There's a threat against his life, so he's taken back to Caesarea, only this time in chains, and he ends up staying there for two years. It's the start of what was probably his final imprisonment. And it all begins because Paul is ready to be bound and even to die in Jerusalem. Why? Why was he so determined to go to Jerusalem? We know he was taking a collection for the Jerusalem church. Certainly he wants to demonstrate unity with the churches elsewhere in the Roman Empire. But there would have been other ways to do that. I think in the end, the reason Paul went to Jerusalem was that he simply couldn't not go. He was under orders, impelled by the Spirit and by his own calling. And it was no good saying to him that he would be made a captive. He already was a captive. When he talks to the elders from Ephesus, he describes himself as a captive to the Spirit. The Spirit was telling him to go. So that was decided. What Paul knew was that chains and captivity do not mean defeat. On the contrary, as he wrote to the Corinthians, he knew he already had all the victory through Jesus Christ. What he could see ahead was the opportunity to tell others about it. That was his goal and his mission. His friends were worried that he would be captured, that he would be defeated. But in the Christian life, captivity is not defeat. Being abused, victimised, oppressed is not defeat. Poverty, humility is not defeat. In the Christian life, the only defeat is disobedience. That pastor in Colombia talked about Christ giving him the victory, but I think he was already a victor. I think that victory was won the moment he got back onto the bike and returned home because it showed the guerrillas that they could threaten him, they could even kill him, but they could never defeat him. Life has been rough over the last few months, hasn't it? Life's been rough, and not smooth. As we reach the end of our series on dangerous faith, I wonder which way we're going to choose. Are we going to choose the, the dangerous way, the rough way, the rough faith? Or are we going to choose the smooth? Oh, it's so much easier that way. It's so much more comfortable, isn't it? But you see, the word comfortable doesn't appear in the Bible at all in the NIV. 
And the idea of an easy life only happens once where Jesus tells the story of a man who builds bigger barns. And he says to, to, to himself, I've got plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink and be merry. Take life easy, be comfortable. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. And that's a choice that we can make as a Christian. We can say, actually, God, I believe in Jesus and I'm going to trust him to save me. But actually, I'll have this smooth Christian life, please. But the danger of living that way is that at the end of our lives that God says to us, you fool. But the other danger is the world never gets to hear and it never sees the amazing life that is possible, knowing Jesus Christ. And the world never hears about the eternal life that's available through him. The world doesn't need people to live this smooth, this easy Christian life, but to see the dangerous, the rough faith that God is calling us to of carrying our cross. A life where we go back to the village, even knowing the gorillas are waiting for us. Would you have gone back to the village? Would I have gone back to the village? Would we choose to face death rather than a smooth life? Oh, surely, God, you can't be calling me to go back to the village. Come on, that that's rough. Surely you can't be asking me to do that. Would we pray and say, I will not leave until Christ gives me the victory? Paul writes, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Jesus calls us to take up our cross, to live that rough faith that he's calling us to, that life of fullness. What are our expectations? Are our expectations that God gives us this smooth Christian life? Well, Paul returned to Jerusalem from Caesarea knowing that he could face death there. What is God calling us to? as we finish this series. Maybe it's getting up in the morning. I find that hard, getting up to pray. That's rough, isn't it? Maybe that's what he's calling us to. Maybe it's reading scripture. Maybe it's memorising scripture. Maybe it's living lives of radical obedience when even other Christians might be saying, oh, come on, live that smooth faith. Maybe it's sharing the gospel, the good news of Jesus with your friends, even though people may not want to hear about it. Maybe it's speaking out against injustice and racism. Maybe it's taking care of creation better. Maybe it's uh, speaking kind words on social media rather than putting people down. Maybe it's uh, keeping coming to church, engaging with church, even though it's really hard online. What is God calling us to? Paul returned to Jerusalem, even though he knew it was going to be a struggle. He gets back on the motorbike and goes, where is God calling us to get back on the bike? Why not talk about it amongst yourselves? Talk with your friends. Where do you feel that God is calling you to move away from that smooth faith to that rough faith?